Hey, food people. It's me, your host, Amanda Shapiro, and I am so excited for today's episode because we're talking about restaurants, which I love and which I missed so much in the last year and a half or however long it's been. Um, I have started going back and it feels it feels so good. And I'm also excited because we at BA have launched our annual restaurant issue, which is on newsstands now. And we've done this for as long as I've been around and much longer. It's always a celebration of the best restaurants that have opened in the last year. The food, the chefs, the people who made it all happen. But this year, of course, everything is different. There were few industries that were hit harder during the pandemic than restaurants. So many jobs disappeared. So many storefronts shuttered. There was just so much unimaginable loss all around. And as we started to put together this year's restaurant issue, we found ourselves wondering who on God's green earth opened a restaurant in 2020 and why? So today on the podcast, we are going to ask that exact question to two folks who did it. They are Eric C., head chef and owner of Ursula, a New Mexican cafe in Brooklyn that opened last fall, and Sabrina Collier, co-owner of Leah and Louise in Charlotte, North Carolina, which is a Southern-inspired restaurant that opened its dining room in June of 2020. Eric and Sabrina, thank you for joining me on the Food People podcast. Thank Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited about this. Me too. And I have so many questions for you both, but really, I just have one question to start, which is, why did you open your restaurant in the middle of a global pandemic? Sabrina, you first. (laughs) That is a question we've been getting since we opened. And to be honest, we did not know the pandemic was, you know, it was happening. We were so far gone with uh, the planning and opening. We actually got the mandate for Leah and Luis. Uh, We had done media night. We had done friends and family and we were gearing up for, you know, the first day to open. And the day before or two days before the governor was like, no more than 10 people. Because at first, the initial order was for no more than 40 people. And we're like, awesome. We only got 50 seats. (laughs) Great. Awesome. (laughs) We're like, yeah, we can still do this. And then the governor's like, no, 10 people. (sighs) And that that wasn't even our staff. So that stopped us right then. Um, And immediately, we had to pivot into how are we going to make this work and how are we going to pay our staff? So you say we. Who do you co-own the restaurant with? My wonderful husband, Chef Gregory Collier. He is the uh, chef and other co-owner of Lee and Louise. I normally do the uh, front of the house operations and the the serving aspect of it. I just don't cook, so (laughs) I don't cook at all. It's such a personal project for both of you. Where does the name come from? So Leah and Louise. So Leah is Greg's departed baby sister. She died when she was 21, about seven years ago. And Greg's grandmother is Louise. And so both of them cooked. They just cooked on two different ends of the spectrum. His grandmother, she used to make like these butter rolls. She's very traditional by the book. You know how grandparents can be when it comes to cooking. In the restaurant issue, we talk about how Leah and Louise is your take on a modern-day Memphis juke joint. If you don't mind, tell us, what is a juke joint? So a juke joint, back in the, you know, segregation days, 
Black people still wanted to go and hang out and have fun and, you know, let her hair down, listen to music and things like that. So we weren't allowed into your traditional white nightclubs and especially in the, the deep south where we're from. So we created our own places, which were juke joints. And the aesthetic of a juke joint is usually scrap metal, anything you can use to make four walls. So it's a lot of blues music, you know, get down and dance. We added the food aspect because we're restaurateurs and we have to have food. But we wanted a place of fellowship that was centered in Blackness. And it gives people a chance to get another angle of Black food. Because I think people only, when they see Black restaurant owners, they assume it's a certain type of soul food. You know, they assume it's collard greens, mac and cheese, you know, yams. And we use all those ingredients. Just, you know, technique is different. And so we wanted people to have a modern take on, hey, you know, Black chefs, we have as much range as any other, a white chef or Asian chef. And so this was our contribution to that. And what about you, Eric? What was it like for you opening up Ursula during the pandemic? So I closed my my previous cafe, the Awkward Scone, and then I didn't quite know what what was going to happen after that. I had had the rug pulled out from underneath me here in New York one too many times, and I was ready to to give it up. And I I also just didn't know if I wanted to invest enough time and energy into trying to reopen something again. I took a little road trip with my dog and went camping for like three weeks trying to stay away from cities. And I went back home to New Mexico to see my parents. And on that trip, I realized that leaving New York wasn't going to solve anything, that we were all going through the same thing across the whole country. I couldn't go to New Mexico and find a job. There wasn't a job for me in New York at the time. And I did a pop-up to try and kind of like test this concept of doing more strictly New Mexican food. And it was very well received. And it put a little light bulb in my head that maybe I could just create my own job if I wasn't going to be able to find one. I got myself a job and I opened a new cafe. That's It was really coming down to the fact that I needed a job. Yeah, that's really amazing. And so how did the community around you respond? Everybody around me was like cheering it on. And they were giving me the confidence that I needed to do it. Also, to be fair, like this, where Ursula is was just like a very unique opportunity that I wasn't going to find at any other time. And it was the notion of being temporary if it needed to be and being long term if it needed to be. So this was like a very low risk endeavor. So I was like, this kind of opportunity is not going to present itself in New York again. uh, And I have to seize this, see if it works. (laughs) Yeah, that is a unique opportunity considering what restaurant spaces in New York can be like cost-wise. Sabrina, how about you? What were some of the challenges you faced when you realized that you couldn't be a full-service restaurant while complying with the COVID restrictions there? So when we decided that we were still going to go forward with opening Leah and Luis, it was now we have to pivot. So how are we still going to be able to sell our meals? So we changed our menu to more sandwich focus more things that people can take home. We added family meals. So we had to change our menu, but still we had to try to relay the ambiance through takeout 
which is really hard. And I think we have such a great support system in Charlotte, North Carolina, that people were like, we're coming, we're coming, we're going to get chicken sandwiches, we're going to get family meals. Um, That was the first immediate issue because people couldn't come inside. So we'd have cars like lined up getting like picking up their curbside bags. The second issue was you had to try to retain staff because now people are, they can make more money on unemployment. I'm thinking as an individual, uh, if I wasn't a restaurant owner and if I could make, you know, a thousand bucks a week, maybe I wouldn't come to work either. Yes. And we'll get deeper into some of these issues and some of the really smart ways that you've both responded. But I want to shift gears a little bit and just talk about some of this great food that you're both serving. Eric, I know you're probably tired of talking about this burrito, <laughs> but it is featured in our October restaurant issue Breakfast burritos in New Mexico, at least I hear that they are as iconic as bagels are in New York, and that two particular ingredients set them apart from other burritos. Tell us about that, and what else sets your burrito apart? Uh, Everything you said is true. It's the bagel of New Mexico. Yes, you're not lying. And the two like quintessential, non-negotiable parts of a New Mexican-style breakfast burrito are hash browns and New Mexican chilies. Outside of that, there's a little bit of window for flexibility, but it's generally eggs, hash browns, chili, cheese, and then if you have some kind of meat. The ones at Ursula were actually modeled after a hybrid of the ones that my mom would make for us all the time. And my favorite place in Albuquerque called Golden Pride, it's this really weird drive through fried chicken slash burrito joint, but they have the best breakfast burritos and the best tortillas. And you said New Mexican chili specifically, and I'm assuming some other ingredients have some sort of necessary sourcing. How do you source your ingredients at Ursula? Yeah, so the chilies come from two different places. And a lot of people associate New Mexican chilies with hatch chilies. And hatch is a New Mexican chili, but that's like the the most popular one. It's kind of like the Napa Valley of California. Um, For chili, (laughs) my favorite chilies come from just outside of Albuquerque in a place called Lemitar, but I can't get those all the time. So we get our chili from Zia Hatch uh, Green Chili Company, and then I use blue corn and juniper ash for some other pastries. I get them from Navajo-owned agricultural companies in northern New Mexico. And my mom, because it's kind of hard to ship 500 pounds of beans out to Brooklyn every month, Yeah, (laughs) which this doesn't make it any easier, but it makes it more cost effective. My mom actually drives up to Farmington to go straight to the farm. She picks up a truckload of beans, stores them in her garage and ships me like 100 pounds of beans every two weeks. Wow. Wow, This is really a family affair. Yeah, it it really is. And she ships me my red chili powder too. Shout out to Eric's mom. Yeah, she does all the hard work. Sabrina, in... The October issue, we also feature one of the dishes on your menu. It's called Leah's Cabbage, and it consists of roasted cabbage, andouille sausage, and hot honey. I know that Greg is the chef here, but if you don't mind, walk us through the dish. So you gave a great description. Thank you. On top of that, it's a roasted cabbage. uh, with We make a pork neck stock. 
we're in the South, so people that are like, God, I don't eat pork, I'm going to let you know it's pork in this dish, and it's delicious. You just get out the flavor of the pork by making that stock, adding some cream to it, and then the andouille sausage, the hot honey. So it's a very popular dish. People come there just to get that dish. Um, actually, that is Leah's cabbage. Well, it's not Leah's cabbage. So Leah used to make cabbage that was amazing, that had sausage, and it was sweet. It had a little honey in it. She used to make it for us all the time before she passed, and so... So Greg was like, I'm going to try to make her a cabbage. So he makes it and Greg's mom comes down the first day we open and she tasted it and she said, baby, that was so good. It's not your sister's, but it's good. Yeah. The interpretation you were talking about earlier where he's really taking the taking the nostalgia and making it his own. Yeah. Cabbage is huge for us down in the South. Black folks, we make cabbages like every week. Sometimes your grandma may throw a pot of cabbage on on a Wednesday. So it's the nostalgia. I definitely identify with that when he said the burritos are nostalgic for him. Cabbages for us. Yeah. And some people think of cabbage as like diet food or whatever, but that's not how it is down there. I know that for no, sure. You have me at the pork neck. I'll be the, I'll be by next yeah, week. Yeah, exactly. I'm all about that hot honey. I was telling them I was coming to Brooklyn for another event and I told them I'm going to go to Ursula. My husband and I will be there. Yes, please say hello. I'm there every day. I want I want a burrito now. I don't even <laughs> eat spicy food. I don't eat spicy food. My husband does, but I'm going to eat it because I like to eat food how it comes because, to get all the flavor. So I generally do not condone this behavior, um, but you can get it without the chili. See, no, <laughs> I go by chef's suggestion. You know, <laughs> no special request. Get it as it comes. Okay, all right. That that order doesn't <laughs> come with the side eye, but if you if you get it the way it comes. Uh, it's <laughs> Ursula herself actually came to visit Ursula a, a few weeks ago and oh my god and saw this were you nervous I yes and no uh I was nervous to have that many people in my apartment that's really what I was nervous <laughs> about she was living it up she got dressed up to go over there for lunch in all white and a bunch of turquoise and she wanted to go meet all the customers and go tell them who she was oh my god I love it <sighs> I love that yeah she loved it and my niece came and worked in the kitchen for like 15 minutes and bossed everybody around. <laughs> <laughs> so what what did she think? She, I was a little nervous because my grandma is very much like what you were saying. It's not your sister's, but I was like, oh, what, what does she have to say? And she was like, this is just like home. You did such a good job. <gasps> That's so sweet. Yeah, no, she. That's like the only good review you need. Yeah. And she was able to get her flowers while she's here. That's so important. Yeah. That's dope that she was able to come. So. Before we get back into our interview with Sabrina and Eric, we're going to check in with someone else who we highlighted in our restaurant issue. And that's Chef Mike Carter of Down North Pizza in Philadelphia. So Down North's business model is really interesting. They employ formerly incarcerated people, giving them culinary opportunities at a fair wage. And the goal is really to erase the barriers to employment that many people face after they've been incarcerated. Another notable thing about Don North and about Chef Carter is that he puts pineapple on his pizza, which is very controversial, but he has some strong opinions about how exactly to do it if you're going to do it and why he thinks it works. Chef Mike, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Amanda. Okay, so let's get right into it. I'm sure a lot of people are already rolling their eyes and fast forwarding because they just cannot with the idea of pineapple on pizza. I'm more open-minded 
please convince the skeptics that this is something that they should really reconsider. Oh, man. What can I say? Uh, I love pineapple. The sweetness, the little tartness. I understand like that was what really makes people uh, approach it with a little bit of reserve. So we caramelize the pineapple, damn near candy it when we throw it on the pizza here at Down North. How do you do that? Uh, Throw it in a uh, pan with a, a fat, which I use as butter and sugar. And just let it rock until it's almost candy. Like the caramelization starts. So, you know, the sugars start to break down a little bit. And it kind of pushes back that tartness that you get when you bite into a raw pineapple. That's a total game changer. Okay, so pre-cooking the pineapple so that it gets kind of candied. And then you put that on the pizza before it goes in the oven or at the end? Oh, we put it on before it goes into the oven. So I start my base with my four cheese blend. And it's a barbecue beef bacon pizza. So uh, the saltiness and the, the fat from the beef bacon kind of marries with the, the sweetness of the pineapples. And it's beautiful, too, the way that like the fat comes off of the bacon. It kind of like glazes over the pizza. We finish it off with a, a barbecue sauce, house-made barbecue sauce drizzle and some pickled jalapenos. So I like to call that like the trinity. You get the saltiness and then you get the spiciness from the jalapenos and the sweetness from the pineapples. It works because you're balancing it out with those other flavors and the fat and the tang. Tell me, you said beef bacon. Why beef bacon? Well, first and foremost, uh, Philadelphia. It's a big Muslim population in Philadelphia. I would say probably half of our customer base is Muslim. And I'm Muslim myself. So like in Philadelphia, beef bacon is a thing. If you like beef jerky, I'm telling you, it's a game changer. So the flip side isn't your only kind of non-conventional pie. You also have one called Sauce It Up, and that has pickle brined chicken, Thai curry sauce, and cilantro. So I'm imagining chart, creamy, herby. Tell me about this combo. How did you land on this on this trio? Well, uh, one of my favorite cuisines is Thai food. Ever since I was a kid, my mom used to take me to the Red and Terminal, take me to eat sushi. So I was exposed very young to different foods from all over. So I basically went down north with me being an executive chef and able to do whatever I want with the menu. I said, I'm going to make some unconventional pieces. So I, I did the Thai curry with the pickle brine chicken. And I also got some house-made serranos that I, uh, I pickled up with a little bit of ginger and like a tried peppercorn and thyme type thing going on. So uh, I garnish it with that, as well as the cilantro. So in my Sauce It Up piece, I'm definitely entering it in the uh, Pizza Expo in Las Vegas. That's the pizza Damn. that I'm doing down there. So I'm looking I'm looking forward to shaking it up over there because I know they used to regular pepperoni and cheese and, you know, the regular toppings. But it goes together because I guess because Thai food really doesn't have that much cheese influence in it. So people think it doesn't go together. But it's real. <laughs> Good luck. I can't wait to hear how it goes. Me and the gang, we rolling up down north pizza. Uh, Philly is a lot closer, though, so I'll probably end up at down north before I end up in Vegas. Um, thank you so much for being here, and we're so excited to have you in the October issue. Oh, man, I'm excited to be here. I'm honored. Okay, so we've heard about Down North's iconic pizzas. And after the break, we'll go deeper with Sabrina and Eric about how they're both doing way more than any other restaurant that's been open in its first year could probably even comprehend. Sabrina, I want to get a little more insight into Leah and Luis. I know 
Leah and Luis is located in a historically black neighborhood in Charlotte, and that's intentional. Yes. The Camp North End, that's the name of the campus that we are on. It's 76 acre of Old Ford Factory. We're the first full service restaurant there, but there's a lot of like different black owned art studios. Now they have a counter service restaurants there. But for us, it was we're going to a historically black neighborhood. So in essence, you're a part of the gentrification that's going on. For us, we said, okay, if we're going to be a part of the gentrification, how are we adding to the neighborhood we're going to? So we added a pay what you can a dish on our menu. So anybody can come in and get it. And it's usually um, a vegan dish, but it's delicious. It's not, you know, people think about vegan and they just throw some, some stuff on a plate sometimes. We wanted it to be thoughtful. And for people that have dietary restrictions, you either you can have a penny You can pay $10 for it. You can pay $5 for it. So we have that dish because we know our our restaurant, we were trying to do a finer dining, but I'm going into a neighborhood where everybody can't afford a $15 burger. That's just the reality of the situation. So for us, it was, uh, how do I still remain a business person, but cater to the community that, that I'm in at the same time? Right. And not only were you opening this restaurant in the middle of a pandemic, but also right at the murder of George Floyd and the protests that followed. What was it like operating Leah and Louise during this time? That was a very emotional time. Greg and I were, you know, outside of being restaurant owners, we were Black people. And so Black people first. And so it was... It was one of the most emotional times where you felt connected to something that you didn't know the people directly involved. And for us, like our first uniform shirts when we opened on Juneteenth were Black Lives Matter shirts. So if you didn't like it, you didn't have to come. You know, some of our staff still wears those T-shirts. Everyone was so supportive and on board. And so for us, it was, oh, we're going through a pandemic. This racial pandemic has been going on for hundreds of years, but now it's bubbling up. You know what I'm saying? It's bubbling up to the surface again during this century. And so for us, it was, we got to push through and, and we have to make impact. And some of that work is happening within your own restaurant. Tell us a little bit about that. So for front of the house, we try to hire a lot of younger minority people that won't get the opportunity to be in higher end dining. So they have the experience because we didn't have it. We give them the training and the tools. Same thing in the kitchen. My staff in the kitchen, most people are 25 and under, you know, culinary students. And, you know, Greg goes through and he's teaching them things that you don't really learn in culinary school. Sabrina, To be so aware and so community-oriented is really no small feat, especially in your first year of running a restaurant. And Eric, I want to get your take on this because besides the fact that you both opened during the pandemic and besides the fact that you both named your restaurants in honor of your grandmothers, which I love, community engagement is also a central mission for you at Ursula. Yeah, I guess for Ursula, the like broader scope is engaging and definitely being ingrained in the queer community. I myself am a, a queer chef and the majority of my staff is is queer and POC. So it's it's important for us to to bring up our people with us. But we have been hosting a series of pop-ups out of Ursula since February. It's called the Queer Community Takeout Series. And we're a takeaway counter service place only. So this was kind of an answer to trying to rebuild some form of community attachment in the dead of winter in New York City where you were forced to 
interact through plexiglass and face masks and you couldn't eat inside or gather inside anyway. So we were like, well, how can we rebuild community with a to-go box? And so it was just by way of sharing our space with other people. I had a lot of friends that lost their businesses and so they were pivoting. They started a pop-up in their home. So we're closed a couple days a week. We close early most of the week. And so I had the space and the resources to be able to share with people. And if that meant giving other people an opportunity to try out a new cuisine, to try out a new concept, or just to make some money and put it in their pocket, then that, that's what the goal was. Ursula was also an experiment at trying to change some of the more unfair and exploitative practices and, and kind of standards of the industry by not having time off or by working 12-hour days. And then part of it just became in setting boundaries for how many burritos we're going to sell a day. Because when it's busy on the weekends, we'll sell 180 burritos in three hours. That's one burrito every minute. And there's only two people that can fit in that kitchen. It's a tiny, tiny kitchen. So it's like super rapid. It's very strenuous. It's hot. You're above a flat top the whole time. And it's just, it's not fair to anyone to have to like put themselves through that for any longer than three hours. And we could sell another 200 of them if I wanted to, but that's not the kind of operation I want to run. It's not entirely based on on money and, and capital. It's also about just creating good food and not burning out and being able to then invest that into the community. What advice would you both give to new restaurant owners about year one, pandemic or otherwise? For going to be frank, my advice would be Make sure you, you do your research before jumping into the, the restaurant industry because I, I do feel like people have this. They, they look at it with rose-colored glasses at times. They feel like, oh, I went to culinary school or whatever, and I'm going to come out. I'm a chef, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to do what I want to do. Um, that's I know that's something my husband would say. You can do what you want to do, but you also want things to sell. So where can you meet in the middle of that? Um, because you're not always the one buying the food. So I, I would tell people to do that and um, get an accountant. <laughs> if you have it, please get an accountant. You know, the I wish someone had told me that year one, you know, get an accountant so you know, hey, my food cost is kind of high or, you know, I don't have enough money to pay everybody, you know. So um, I would tell anybody that, pandemic or not. And a good lawyer. Get, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Two for one, maybe. <laughs> what about what about you, Eric? I would say to ask questions, like not to be afraid to ask questions. And I think that so many of us go into business thinking that we're supposed to know everything, and we don't. And the more that you ask around, the more you'll find out that most people don't know everything, and a lot of people are willing to share the information that they have. There was so much I could have learned without having to make the mistake or spend the money had I just asked somebody else. And I think that you just got to put away some of your pride and ego and talk to other people because for the most part, the restaurant community is very open and welcoming and warm and wants to see you succeed. Yeah. And going back to the pandemic for a second, not that we ever want to go back, Lord but no. if if you could go back to March 2020 Knowing what you know now, would you still have opened your restaurants? You want to take that, Serena? <laughs> no, you go first, Eric. You go first. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, 
this didn't change. Like, this wasn't any different than my normal MO. Mm-hmm. I'm sometimes a little erratic, but also I'm, I don't necessarily enjoy risks, but I'm not afraid of them. And it was something that was necessary for me, pandemic or not. But uh, it's been quite a blessing. It's, it's really weird to, to be grateful for what mm-hmm. was catalyzed by the pandemic. But I'm professionally and creatively in a much better place than I was before. So I can't say that I wouldn't do it again. How about you, Sabrina? I back him up 100% on what he said. Um, even personality-wise, I don't enjoy risk. I'm one of those people. I'm not going to stop because of fear. Now, I'll cry through it. But I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna stop. You'll feel all the feelings. Feel all the feels. I, I'm an Aries, so I'm a Ram. So I just like. I'm like, look, we're gonna we're gonna do it. You know. Or my husband is. My husband's a Leo. You know how y'all are. You know how y'all are. <laughs> it takes a Leo to open a restaurant during a pandemic. I'll say that. It truly does. <laughs> and so um, we were already having to pivot. We're so used to that from when we first opened our first restaurant. Yeah, it sucked at first, but it was almost a blessing because it kind of showed you. I am badass. Like, yeah, like I don't I don't have imposter syndrome. Like I'm really badass in what I do. And so uh I wouldn't I wouldn't take it back at all. Yeah. Those are both great answers, both yes, practical and inspirational. And I can't say that I'm coming out of this conversation thinking that you should open a restaurant in the middle of the <laughs> pandemic. But I'm so glad that both of you did. And I think your communities, respectively, are so lucky to have you. And I really hope that the roads ahead are smoother than the roads behind you. Uh, So thank you both for everything that you're doing. And thank you for sharing your stories with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you to our guests today, Eric C. and Sabrina Collier and Chef Mike Carter for joining Food People. To read more about Eric and Sabrina's restaurants and to get those recipes we talked about, check out Bon Appetit's October issue out now or visit us online at bonappetit.com. To follow along on their journeys, make sure to follow Eric on Instagram at erictheawkwardscone and his restaurant at Ursula underscore Brooklyn. For Sabrina and Greg Collier's restaurant, follow Leah underscore and underscore Louise. And for Down North Pizza, go to downnorth underscore pizza. If you love the show, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps keep us food people in business. And you can follow Bon Appetit on Instagram at Bon Appetit Mag and on Twitter at Bon Appetit. Food People is produced by Bon Appetit in partnership with Pod People. Vishnu Vallabhaneni is our senior producer. Ginny Bloom is our showrunner. Madison Lusby is our production manager, and Morgan Foose and Jessica Jones are our associate producers. This episode was engineered by Trey Booty, and the music is by DJ Newmark. June Kim and I provide editorial direction for the series. Special thanks to Matt Sav, Nico Steele, and Julie Shen. I'm your host, Amanda Shapiro. I'll see you next week. Thank you.